Man, good morning. How y'all doing? Good. My name's Ryan. What's yours? All right. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Good to see everybody today. Any Beatles fans? Yeah, I know. I could tell you didn't sing any of the other songs, but that one you did. That's, that's a bold move, coming to church, not singing during the congregational part and during the special band's performance. Way to steal the show. It's funny, it's been that way in all three services. All three services, you know, we kind of come in, you don't know the music, but then we play that song, man, everybody starts like singing along, right? It's like, I know this one. <laughs> what does that have to do with Jesus? But I know it, I'll sing it. So here comes the sun, right? Uh, written by a little band called The Beatles. I've got to come clean. I've never owned a Beatles album. I couldn't tell you, how many Beatles are there? Five? Four? Okay, I'm... It's unconditional love. Everybody's welcome here, people. Everybody, all right? Don't start judging me, you hypocrites. All right, I can tell you that much right now. So there's four Beatles, right? George Harrison wrote that one, that song, and uh, called Here Comes the Sun, came out in 1969 in their album, uh, Abbey Road, right? Now, a funny story about this song is that it was written in kind of the spring of 1969. It was then released later on that year. And what was so funny was it, the song was written at a time in George Harrison's life where he was really struggling. He was really struggling. Earlier in, I think it was like, like 1968, he had been arrested for marijuana. We don't have to worry about that one anymore. Oh, that's not funny in this service. Okay, so, I got it. I, mean, I thought you were the Thursday night crowd for a second. Okay, so no more marijuana jokes in this one. I got it. All right. Mental note. So, uh, but he had been arrested for marijuana. He'd had his tonsils removed and Apple, the recording label that the Beatles had founded, which was supposed to be this kind of creative outlet for them. Uh, it really had become a business and it was very draining. And if you're an artsy type person, if you're an artist, you understand like you don't want to sit in business meetings. You want to write music. And so uh, he decided this one spring day, he thought it was going to be a nice day. So he decided to skip a whole bunch of meetings to Apple that he was supposed to go to. And he went over to his friend's house, a guy named Eric Clapton. Maybe you've heard of Eric Clapton. I don't know. Went over to Eric's house to hang out for the afternoon, picked up one of Eric's acoustic guitars, started walking through his garden, and he wrote the song, Here Comes the Sun. And that is the story behind this song. One afternoon, just strumming around, walking through a garden because the sun was coming out. And, and then all of a sudden, this song gets recorded and it gets released. And what happens? It goes crazy, right? It's to this day, almost 50 years later, it is still being played all over the world. It's the soundtrack to certain movies, TV. So you'll, I guarantee you there'll be a movie that comes out in the next year, right? Where this song will be a part of it. It just captures, now why does it capture our minds? Why is this song so huge? Well, I think it's so huge. I think it captures us because we can relate to it. Like we can relate to the power and the oppression of darkness and the power of light. Like we can relate to that metaphor, right? Like I, I spent a lot of my time in Maine. And in Maine, at this time of year, you live, we live super east. Like you couldn't get much further east than where we were. You'd have to go north to get there. And about this time of year, the days start to get very short. And really uh, by in the heart of winter, by the time it was four o'clock, it was already nearly dark outside. Kids getting off the bus in darkness. And so I, I can resonate with that craving of, oh, when the sun finally comes out, when it starts 
starts to get bigger, right? We, we, can, we can understand that. And this idea of darkness and light is one of the most useful metaphors in understanding this big, massive concept of depression and mental health. That's what we wanna talk about today. But before we jump into it, I thought it'd be good to actually have somebody stand up here who knows what they're talking about. Isn't that a novel idea, right? Like I read a blog post once on depression, so I'll pretend like I'm an expert. No. So what I, I'm excited to introduce you to a friend, a new friend, uh, a guy who was part of the search team that brought me here. So I think they did a bang up job. Uh, really nice, really nice work, Randy. So do me a favor. Welcome Randy up to the stage uh, with us today. And uh, Randy's going to help us understand a little bit of the tension and the confusion around this big topic of depression. So thank you very much for being here with us, Dr. Randy Swaim. And tell us a little bit about yourself for those folks that maybe don't know you. Tell us a little bit about uh, your history, your story of Crossroads, like what you do outside of here in your professional life. You are not a professional Christian like me. Uh, I spend my whole life being paid to love Jesus. So it's a pretty good gig, but that's not you. I understand. Uh, but you have this normal life that you leave here and do all kinds of amazing work being Jesus out there. So tell us a little bit about that work and how it intersects with mental health. So you realize what he just did. He just called all of us amateur Christians. <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. It's job security. <laughs> Well, I began working in the mental health field in 1978. And I know what you're all thinking. How can that be? He looks so young. <laughs> um, so I worked uh, for a county mental health program in Southern California. And I was working primarily with people who had chronic mental illnesses. Most of them were diagnosed with schizophrenia. And I did that for about six or seven years. And then uh, my wife and I, we moved to Colorado and I joined the faculty at Colorado State on the uh, psychology department. And so over the years, I've been teaching graduate students, uh, training them to become psychologists. And I've also more recently been focusing on uh, training undergraduate students uh, to become addiction counselors. And in addition to that, I've done private practice. I've worked at a drug and alcohol treatment facility. And currently, in addition to my work uh, at the university, I'm a consulting psychologist for the Social Security Administration. Okay. So and I'm tired. I'm ready to quit. Man. So it sounds like you're an amateur at this thing that Definitely. you do, right? Just starting Definitely. out, right? So yeah. lots of amazing experience. So you're, the, you're the right person to help us, right? So as we kind of dive into this topic today, um, can you like help, help us understand like the 50,000 foot view of this idea of depression, right? Because uh, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding that goes on uh, in the world around depression if, if, if we don't experience it ourselves or if we maybe don't have a family or friend or we know what to label it. So give us kind of the 50,000 foot view, what factors are involved for those that are walking with this disease and, and maybe what are trigger symptom signs. So help us understand it from a big picture, right? So like 30 years of experience, you got about two and a half minutes, go. No, 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 help us understand. Okay, well, uh, depression shows itself in, in a variety of ways, but I'm just gonna talk about two. I'm going to talk about sadness and depression. Uh, 
And actually what I'm going to say in a few minutes is that sadness is not depression. So let's first talk about sadness. Sadness is a universal experience. Uh, can anyone in here raise their hand if you've never been sad? Mm. And I don't see any hands because that's something we all experience, right? And so we can almost always say that sadness is the result of some loss experience. It might be a minor loss. Someone maybe makes a passing statement that makes us feel bad about ourselves. Uh, maybe you fail a test. We might have a minor financial setback. And with these minor or even moderate uh, episodes of loss, we feel sad, but we usually bounce back pretty quickly. After we've had some time to process what's happened, after some time has passed, we kind of get back to our usual uh, way we feel about ourselves. But then, of course, we know that there's some major loss experiences, loss of a relationship, uh, maybe even the death of a close friend or loved one. Those we don't bounce back quite as quickly, right? And we know that some grief experiences can last months, years. Um, I, I uh, talked with someone after the service, the morning service, who's still grieving after seven years. And so we don't bounce back quite as quickly from those major loss experiences. But then we come to depression. How is depression different than sadness? In my world, in the world of psychology and psychiatry, we make a difference between sadness and depression. Uh, depression is a diagnosable condition. So whenever someone moves from sadness to depression, several new things are happening that don't normally happen with sadness. We begin to, uh, our thinking can become confused. We have trouble concentrating. We might start feeling guilty about things we have no reason to feel guilty about. We might become more irritable. And then we have some bodily things that happen. Because when we're talking about clinical depression, which is sometimes also called biological depression, it's a biochemical event. So people lose energy. They have difficulty sleeping. Um, they lose their sex drive. All of these things are related to biochemical changes that are happening. Mm. So... Whenever we're sad, we can usually look around and say, okay, that's why I'm sad. I, I, I know what's going on here. This thing happened to me, and I'm feeling sad about that. Sometimes when we get depressed, we look around and we think, what's going on here? I don't know mm. why I'm, I'm depressed. I, nothing has happened. And that's because it's this biological event that's taken the place. Mm. So... So you're kind of addressing, and maybe you can unpack it a little bit more. So within depression, like there can be trigger events, but there doesn't necessarily need to be a trigger. So it's, it, sometimes we look for like a very well-meaning person who all, all of a sudden is thrust into the world of a person who is in the midst of depression would say, well, what happened? But there doesn't necessarily have to be a happening, right? 
Exactly. So usually with sadness, there is a trigger. With some depressions, there can also be a trigger. But for other types of depression, this biological depression, there is often not a trigger. The same thing happens with anxiety. Some of you may have experienced panic attacks. Mm. There are what are called triggered panic attacks and untriggered panic attacks because that's something that's happening inside of you mm. that relates to no external event. Mm. Now, this is, I mean, this is a huge reality in our world. And I, I'm, I'm very thankful that it feels like over the last, and you could probably speak to this far more, not probably, huh, you can speak to this far better than I could, but over the last 20 years, it seems like there's been massive strides in the, the ability to diagnose, care for, treat, walk with folks with mental health concerns and depression. But yet it feels like the church has been kind of very late in the game having the conversation, figuring out our space in caring and walking with. Why is that? Why is it that a space that is meant to be filled with unconditional love, acceptance, grace, transformative power, like why do you think it is that the church has struggled for so long and is really just now, and, and some parts of the church are still not having the conversation, but it's just now starting to have this dialogue Yes, I think that's really a very good question, and and I think it's a complex question, one that's difficult to answer in uh, just a few short words, but may, may, let me just mention a couple of things. I think, first, sometimes I think that when we acknowledge that we're depressed or anxious or dealing with some other kind of mental health issue, we feel that we've let God down, mm. that... Well, I'm not committed enough. Uh, my faith is not strong enough. There's something wrong. I'm not doing this Christian thing right mm. here. On the other hand, I think that it can go the other direction in which we don't necessarily think that we've let God down, but we think he's let us down. That God's not holding up his part of the bargain. That I thought that when I became a Christian, I wasn't going to have to deal with this anymore. That I thought that everything was just going to be uh, fine and dandy. Uh, and so what's going on that God's not allowing me to have this happy, peaceful, uneventful life that I was hoping I would have? So, but I mean, when you look at the Bible, you don't have to read very long in the Bible where you see that a number of the people that God cared about and loved dearly they struggled certainly with sadness and probably also with depression. Ryan, last a uh, couple of weeks ago, you talked about uh, Elijah yeah. and how he felt like he was alone in the world, the only one who was left of among God's people. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Elijah felt sad. He may have even felt depressed. Mm. And then you read the Psalms, uh, many of which were written by King David. There were times when David was one depressed guy. In fact, you read some of the Psalms, some of the descriptions about how he's feeling about himself, they read almost like in a textbook what you read about clinical depression. Mm. So, uh, I mean, God's people are joyful, they're happy, they're depressed, they're sad. We experience the whole range of human emotions. Um, mm. So I think that when we do acknowledge that we're depressed or we're anxious, that puts us in pretty good company, right? Mm. We even wind up in the company of, of David, who was called a, a man after God's own heart. So kind of what I heard you say there is there's like this kind of false sense or false understanding of 
God at the root of it, right? That would say, I'm not supposed to feel these things if I'm a part of church. And so I don't ever talk about it. Wow. Well, here's the scoop. You're gonna be back at a table. So we at the end of the service this morning, Randy's gonna be back at, there's a, sign that says care and support, I believe. And right under that, Randy's gonna be there and there's a whole bunch of other resources from the broader community, not just things that we offer here at Crossroads Church, but other resources from the broader community on this topic of depression. If you are a family member uh, or as we wanna walk through the service, you feel like, I'd like to go have a, a conversation. I think Perry's gonna be there as well, who's our pastor of care and support. And so it'd be a great place to stop by on your way out. Thank you for helping us kind of understand a bit of the tension and the issues at stake with all this. Can we give uh, Randy a great big hand? Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Yeah. So I, I think it's fascinating as Randy describes like the, the mentality behind folks that when I'm in church, when I'm a part of a faith community, or if I've, I've, I've given my life to Jesus, whatever language we use, we, we still sense that, well, if that happens, this isn't a, a space where this is supposed to exist, which fundamentally tells me that there's a problem with the space that's been created, that there's a lack of language, there's a lack of imagination, there's a lack of understanding that opens up the context for the content of depression. And, and, and do you want my opinion on why that is? Good, I'll tell you. Uh, I, I, think, I think that the reason why uh, many of our faith communities, oftentimes the ones that look very similar to ours are the ones that I've grown up in that are part of my tradition, why we have such a terrible time uh, being a part of this conversation in the broader world is because we have taken this language of born again and we have misused it and created a very dangerous and a very damaging spirituality. So if you're a talk notes person, the fun just began. You got your first fill in there. While you're filling that in, I'll tell those of you that just wanna experience all of my glory today and not fill in. Uh, I'm wearing my favorite, one of my favorite t-shirts, which is a picture of Jesus as is so depicted, which is absolutely inaccurate, uh, that says, I never said that as the quote, the caption, so. Instead of you spending the whole time trying to figure out what my t-shirt says, I'll just share that with you. And that's, I love over here, just got it. That was awesome. Thank you. This is my favorite section this morning so far. And that was my me giving you an opportunity to pull out your talk notes. That's what that whole little thing was. Just a little tip of the trade. So that's what happens though, is we've used this language of born again. Jesus, uh, if you're not kind of, maybe you've heard that phrase born again, but you've probably heard it if you're, if you're like not a faith person, not a church person, which is absolutely fine. Uh, and you're kind of exploring you're here today because she's really pretty and said, why don't you come to church? Cool, I'm glad you're here. And you're like, yeah, I have heard that phrase born again. Those born agains, they would come by my house or they would, ha you know, they, they, whatever it might be. It's generally a pejorative kind of way of thinking because there's a whole bunch of us in the faith community that we took this one little passage of one conversation that Jesus had with one person who had a very specific misunderstanding about faith. And he uses this analogy of being born of the spirit, being born again. And we took that and we loved it and we grabbed a hold of it and we created a spirituality and a theology around it that really misunderstood the whole point of the conversation. The whole point of the conversation was, hey, guess what? The kingdom of God is not about this flesh and blood thing. The 
kingdom of God is something different and you can't be a part of the kingdom of God without God doing this mysterious spiritual work in your life. And Jesus uses the analogy of the wind. You can't see, you can't see the wind, you can only experience it. You don't know where it comes or goes. Now we know where it comes or goes, Jesus. What did he know, right? I mean, gosh, come on, son of God. But at any rate, like that was just the reality of the time that Jesus lived in. There wasn't meteorologists. They didn't study wind patterns. So it was this very mysterious thing. Where did the wind come from? And so Jesus uses that analogy. And the point was, right, the, the, to live in the kingdom, to see the kingdom, to be a part of it is not something that you can do. You have to have this whole reversal of way of thinking and way of seeing. And that only happens through the work of this mysterious God. And so the, to illustrate this point, I like to ask this question. How many of you had a big say in your first birth? Like you put it on the appointment calendar. You said, today's the day. You blocked it off. Like anybody have anything to do with their own conception? Yeah, so same is true of your second birth, right? We turned it into say this prayer and now you're born again. But that in my mind is spiritually just as foolish as thinking that I physically had something to do with my first birth. It's a gift. And we actually see that in other passages of scripture. But when you start using this language of born again, of new birth, of I'm alive in Christ, all this language that we pull out, that some are very kind of Bible words, that the old life has passed away. The new life has begun. Paul says, I'm crucified crucified with Christ and now I live. It's no longer Christ that lives, no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. So when you grab a hold of that language, you start thinking, well, I'm not supposed to have any suffering. I'm not supposed to feel sad. I'm supposed to be filled with joy. And so we create a space like Randy describes that we're not allowed to talk about it because it's it's not part of the experience of Jesus. But yet it is. We just don't wanna talk about it. And when we look at scripture, like Randy says, we can look at people in scripture that seem that we love to put up as like these wonderful figures and examples of faith. And I wanna look at uh, a guy named Paul today for just a couple of minutes, a couple of passages that he wrote in some letters that I think if we can use our imagination and be a little creative, I think we can actually learn some lessons from Paul and his own depression. So I'd like to be a little creative today with the Bible, if that's okay with you. And if that makes you concerned or nervous, I am trained, okay? I am trained, all right? So don't freak out, okay? And I think you'll find that the the thought process here is not so far off, all right? It's just maybe one that you haven't thought about, okay? And I have a lot of thoughts that a lot of people don't think. So uh, I choose not to talk about most of them, but this one I will, okay? So Paul, right, if you're new to Bible study, Paul is one of the most important figures in the history of this thing that became known as Christianity. And which causes me to say, Jesus never came to start another religion. That was our fault, okay? Jesus came to create a new way of life for everybody, right? He didn't come to say, oh, let's create another religion that sits alongside all these other ones, right? And I always love to say, God loves everybody, even Christians. That's kind of my mantra, okay, to just break our machine a little bit, right? And so we took this way of Jesus and turned it into structures and religion and rules because that's what we know, right? But Jesus came to break open the whole thing, right? And so Paul has this encounter with Jesus. He was a Jew, a part of a religious system that had rejected Jesus, Jesus' own religious system. And Paul has this encounter, changes his 
life. And he becomes one of the most pivotal figures in the history of the Christian faith, right? The, of people following Jesus. And we have some letters that Paul wrote. And that's actually the majority of what we call the New Testament, the second part of the Bible. And so I wanna look at just a couple of lines from two letters that Paul wrote. And uh, we'll give you a little background to it so you know that I'm not just ripping them completely out of context. But uh, we'll just talk for a few minutes and see if we can't learn some lessons. So the first one I wanna talk about is this letter that Paul wrote to a group of people called the Corinthians. They lived in a town called Corinth. Paul had gone there, had brought the message of Jesus, had started a, probably a small house church uh, and, and was beginning to bring this message of hope, of love, of grace, of a God who gives everything to be in relationship with us and was doing everything possible to say, you don't need religious structures and systems. God has done it all, right? And so he starts this faith community there and he writes a letter because this faith community had started to follow voices that were a little off. But they loved to follow those voices because they wore all the right clothes. They had the suit and tie. They had the big black Bibles, right? They could say the word God just right, whatever it might be. And so they started to follow after these voices and Paul was kind of losing his influence. And so he starts to kind of go into this season. He's like bragging a little bit about himself to show like, hey, I have reason. You have reason to trust me. I have every reason to to brag about, look at me. And he's, he's telling all these accomplishments in his life. And he talks about how foolish he sounds, but he feels like he has to do it. But then he comes to this point in this letter, and this is what he says. So, or but to keep me from becoming proud of all these things that I've done in my life, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Thorn in my flesh, right? Not a good image that Paul gives us. I have in my hands right now uh, a whole bunch of these little splinters because I put a fence in at my house this past week. And I really shouldn't say I put a fence in at my house. I helped somebody else put a fence in at my house, which means I picked up stuff and handed them things for two days. All right, let's not, let's not get past my pay grade on some of these things. All right. But I did learn how to mix cement, which was fun. Okay, so... I've got these splinters in my hands, right? And it's not a good thing, right? I just want it to be very clear that Paul's talking about a thorn in his flesh. There's not a cultural divide there. That's a bad thing, okay? He's saying, I, ha- I was given this thing and he calls it a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Now, I've just got to say, do I think this was a messenger from Satan? No, I don't think that. I, I don't believe that that was some demon who's coming. I think Paul's trying to interpret his experience in language that only he has, This is the only language he knew. It's not like he would go to the doctor and find out what was going on and have an MRI, right? I mean, that's not how this worked. They didn't run blood work back then, right? So Paul's understanding, but what he holds is this. This is a really bad thing. It's, I hate it. I don't want it, but it keeps me from becoming proud. So isn't that interesting? He's saying something good is coming out of something really bad. And this is why I think this, this could be depression, we don't know what it is. I love, this is to me one of the most inspiring parts about scripture is that there's some ambiguity here. So we don't know what the thorn in his flesh was. Paul never actually says what it was. And there's been all kinds of theories out there and they're all equally wrong, right? This is, we're just trying to figure it out. But I think it could be depression because this is what he says. Three different times, I beg the Lord to take it away. Beg the Lord to take it away. And each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. That sounds a lot like an depre- episode of depression, of begging for it to go away, of not knowing why I'm experiencing this. I don't want this in my life. But Paul is able to bring a redemptive view of it because God whispers into his life, I can be strong in your weakness. I can carry you through this. I can walk with you through this. And so Paul says, check this out. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses. I love that Paul doesn't hide it. 
Paul doesn't pretend the thorn in his flesh doesn't exist. Paul doesn't pretend he doesn't have depression. Paul doesn't pretend that somehow he is not loved by God or following God. No, he says, I boast about it because the power of Christ can work through me in that. He says, so I take pleasure in my weaknesses. That's crazy right there. I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and hardships and persecutions and other troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And what we see Paul doing here is something I think very important is that Paul is giving meaning to his struggle. He's not pretending it doesn't exist. He's not pie in the sky saying, oh, well, there's just sin in my life. Or he doesn't think he has to pray more. He says it's there, but it doesn't have to sit on its own. Like I can interpret and understand this struggle in my life. And for today's purposes, we'll say and pretend it was depression, that I can, I can have meaning in this. And it's because underneath it all, Christ can use it and can give me strength to walk through the weakness. It never went away. We need to recognize that desperately as God's people. It never went away. And Paul says, if it's never gonna go away, it's gotta be part of my story. And my story is one of redemption. And so even this will be redeemed by a God that is good. And so Paul also writes to a group of people known as the Philippians. They lived in a town called Philippi. It's in a letter in the New Testament called Philippians. Super creative names we have. We can thank the early church fathers for this, right? So this letter called Philippians, Paul is talking to them about a different kind of hardship in his life, but he's talking about financial hardship, how he's had experiences in his life where he had everything, all the power, all the prestige, all the financial resources, and he's lived in extreme poverty. And this is very understandable if you ever study the life of Paul, uh, and that Paul was on the fast track to probably becoming like the president of Israel. And I use that language because that's what we know. We understand the president of the United States. But Paul was a up-and-coming young political leader and gave up everything when he encountered Jesus. Like We don't really get a lot of times the reality of what Paul gave up to follow Jesus. Like he was probably well on his way to become the president. I mean, he, he was, they loved him. He had the right pedigree, the right training. He was on the fast track. And so he had everything, but he's also known to have nothing. And he writes to the Philippians about their love and their support of him. And he says this, he says, I know how to live on almost nothing or on everything. In other words, I know how to live in really good times and I know how to live in really bad times. I know how to live in the ups and I know how to live in the downs. And I have learned that the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty or with plenty or little, whether it's with this wonderful outlook on life or whether it's in the darkness and despair of being shipwrecked and having no food. I've learned that I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength, right? He's kind of the same message that he gave to the Corinthians, that Christ is at the the fundamental beginning of all my strength. And what we hear in this, right, is that Paul's life, his faith, was more like candy. It was more like shoots and ladders than candy land. You know what I'm talking about? You ever play these two stupid games? (laughs) These are the dumbest games ever created. Like Milton or Bradley, one of the two. I don't know. Is that the same person or were they a partnership? I don't know. Are they even Milton Bradley or are they Hasbro? If I get my hands on that Hasbro guy. (sighs) These games are awful. You know why these games are horrible? Because... I am smarter than my kids. I'm stronger than my kids. And they can still beat me at these two games. There's no skill involved. That's the, that's the game. And even sometimes you can't even do that right. How many of you had to re-spin? You know, you know it. Like, 
you hit it and it goes like just a little bit and then they make fun of you and then you just flick your kids on accident. You do that, you don't do, oh, that was just me. All right, I've never done that, no. So you flick that little flicker and it gives you a number. Now here's the thing about Candyland, right? No matter where you land on Candyland, even if bad stuff happens to you, it's all named after candy. You're like, oh, I'm in the fudge swamp, (laughs) darn. (laughs) I have to spend a whole turn just dreaming of eating chocolate. This is terrible, right? There's nothing, I mean, in a sense, there's really like, it's all kind of this good. But chutes and ladders is a totally different thing. I can at least respect chutes and ladders because they call it a chute, you know, and people aren't smiling as they, well, I guess they are. It's like a fun slide, so it's kind of a lie. But you flick the wheel, you get your three, you move three, and you randomly get to take the slide all the way up to the top and beat your dad. No, not a slide. The ladder, thank you. My time. Okay, thank you. So no, just right, that's the, you get the ladder up. Or you flick the wheel and you can be winning and you land on the chute and you go all the way back down. It's pointless. It's meaningless. You did nothing wrong to deserve the chute. You did nothing right to deserve the ladder. You just... It's absurdity at its finest. But I think that's what Paul is saying. Life is kind of like... That there's these chutes and there's these ladders and I I don't know why I get a a chute in one situation and why I get a ladder in another situation. But I can play the game of life and I can walk through because Christ gives me strength. And he's saying that, right? But here's here's the twist. And and this will freak you out if you're a church person. If you're a church person, this will freak you out. If you're not a church person, you go, duh, right? But just bear with us church people, okay? Paul is about to say, that Christ is not enough. If you really listen, Paul could have ended it right there. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But he adds this little sentence that tells us, but that's not enough. And if you're a church person, you're just like, oh, maybe I should go find another church. (laughs) And maybe that's true, I don't know, right? I hope not. And if you're not a church person, you're like, well, duh, yeah, like I have lots of, things in my life that helped me get through. And I never knew God and I made it through this or I made it through that. And here's what Paul says. Even so, right? Christ who gives me strength, even so you've done well to share with me in my present difficulty. That even so Christ gives me strength, I still need you. I still need you. And the Philippians were present for Paul's present difficulties. See, Paul's saying, it's true. Like there is this foundation. There is this fundamental reality that Christ gives me strength. But even so, you're necessary. You came alongside of me and you supported me. And this present difficulty was financial. And the Philippians had given and supported Paul in his ministry. He says, so yes, Christ gives me strength. But the wild thing about it is it's not everything. I need you as well. And and Christ strengthens me through you. And so we get these two realities about depression and about struggles in life that yes, Christ gives us strength in the middle of it, but that is not sufficient in a world where we're built relationally with flesh and blood, that we need one another. And that's the role of the body of Christ to come in and be Christ. So it says, Christ is sufficient. You can't divorce that from the community of faith. 
Because to go out on your own and to try and do this Jesus thing by yourself will fail. It'll just, well, where is the hope? Like, I, I mean, what's gonna happen? You gotta have a physical expression of the body of Christ for Christ to be sufficient. You see what I did there? So is Christ sufficient? Yes, but Christ is sufficient through the expression of a community of faith that is centered on Christ because we are the body of Christ. And Paul demonstrates that to us. And, and we see this is the point of Jesus. Before Jesus even showed up, right? Before Jesus showed up, we have this great like prophetic word, like poem that gets written. And it's in the voice of Zechariah who would become John the Baptist's father. And in Luke chapter one, verses 78 and 79, this is what it says. Because of God's tender mercy. Now, right there, we could stop. And I bet 75% of us could go home with a good word. God's tender mercy. Because your experience, your understanding, what you've been told about God is anything but one of tender mercy. It says, because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us. It's a metaphor for Jesus. The morning light of heaven is about to break upon us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. Now, I can't think, Randy, you could probably think of a better, I don't know, I'm just, I'm such an amateur in this world of depression and psychology, but from the things that I've experienced, the conversations I've had, I cannot think of a better description for an episodic depression, for depression than for those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. That in its most difficult space, as it emerges, there is this shadow of darkness. There's, there's a blinding nature to it. And it feels like sometimes death is the release. But there is a light that comes in the darkness to light up a path to peace. So you see, Jesus lights the path to peace for our souls. I mean, it's right there. This is the point, like to illuminate a path to peace in our lives. But here's the truth. Here's the truth. It is not an easy path. This past Sunday, I went to Red Rocks Amphitheater for a concert. How many of y'all been to Red Rocks Amphitheater? Yeah, give me a big round of applause. Thank you. Oh, that was for Red Rocks. That was for God's creation, not me. Okay, makes sense. So Red Rocks Amphitheater, really cool space, right? We go down there, we're going to a concert and uh, I, we get there like 30 minutes before the show starts. We weren't too concerned about being there on time because the opening act, we didn't really know who it was, no big deal. But I learned a valuable lesson about going to see a show at Red Rocks Amphitheater is if you show up 30 minutes before the concert, it's gonna take you an hour and a half to get to the concert <laughs> once you find a place to park. And so we get to Red Rocks and it's a big line of traffic. It's fine and we're walking up and we finally get to park on the side of the road in the middle of the darkness, right? No, there's just other cars around. So we park and I cannot see the amphitheater. So now it's like, okay, just follow the people, right? This place is huge, seats 10,000 people. I can't see the amphitheater. So I know I'm in trouble, right? So we start walking and it's downhill for the first six miles. And then <laughs> when we... We come around the bend, we realize, oh, the next 12 miles are uphill, <laughs> right? And here's the tricky part. It, it's not like the pavement ends. And so now I step off of pavement and I'm in like rattlesnake territory. <laughs> Thank you, you all who think you're helping me 
by saying, oh, just be careful of the rattlesnakes when you're hiking, just take Benadryl. I'm allergic to Benadryl. That does me no good. So now it's pitch black outside. I'm off the path. I can see Red Rocks Amphitheater thinking a helicopter might be useful right now, right? So we're walking and it's dark. And all I'm thinking is like, I'm gonna get an ankle bite by a rattlesnake going to see some rapper I don't even wanna watch. But here's what was so cool. So we took about 10 feet in, like I, I took that, we just walk in and it's kind of dark, but then all of a sudden there's a handrail. And in the middle of God's wilderness, there's a light coming out of that handrail. And I looked up and you saw this just beam of light. And while I thought to myself, I'm not gonna make it, I thought at least there's a handrail and a light to guide me. And so that light was just bright enough that it just shined right on the path. Didn't it shine outside the path? Just shined on the path. And what, I, what, what, I, what happened was it was not an easy walk, but that light gave me strength to walk the path. Right, I mean, I still had to walk the path. I wanted to get to the amphitheater. Like I couldn't just go, well, I'll just listen from here. <laughs> I thought it, I'm not gonna lie, I thought it. <laughs> but we walked that path. And see, this is what I think Paul is helping us understand is that Jesus and Jesus's followers provide safe light for souls in the darkness of depression. That's the way it has to be. We can't take the path away. We can't remove the path. That path to peace, the amphitheater, is still there. And it's a difficult journey for everybody and whatever it might be. And so let me just give you two pro tips as you walk out of here today. We're gonna leave this place and the real awesome opportunities are gonna begin. Here is good, there is better. I joke around about being a professional Christian. Randy has impacted more lives with the gospel than I will ever, ever do standing up here. It's just, it's impossible. You all have the opportunity that I just don't have to walk out into your everyday normal lives and be that path of light. And someday you're gonna intersect and maybe you yourself are in the midst of depression or your family members. So here's a couple of quick pro tips and we'll get out of here. Number one, be the friend who says it's okay if you're not okay. Don't be the cheerleader friend who says, everything's gonna be okay. You're gonna be just fine. Let's go, get out of bed. Look, the sun is shining. That's not helpful. You don't have to be the cheerleader. Just be the friend. Just be present in the present suffering. And there's something beautiful about that because guess what? You can't walk the path for people. You can only walk with people on their path. And their path is beautiful. Their path is their story is what God is doing. It's them navigating it as best as they can. And so walk with them. And here's the big challenge today. If you're in here and depression is a part of your story, but you have kept it in the darkness, bring it into the light. Bring it into the light. Because when we bring our depression into the light, we begin a journey towards vitality, right? We begin that journey, that path to peace, but it's gotta come into the light. Scripture talks about vitality as the joy of the Lord, like vitality is strength in life. 
Nehemiah, this prophetic voice in the Old Testament says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The people of Israel, a whole weird circumstance, they were all depressed and frustrated and disappointed. And Nehemiah stood up and he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And we see in Jesus something very powerful that the joy of the Lord is not happiness, but it's strength sustaining us in the sadness and in the difficulties. So a guy named Andrew Solomon, he gave a TED talk. And this TED talk was called Depression, The Secrets We Share. And I'd like to just share with you the ending of his TED talk. Uh, what you need to know about Andrew Solomon is he is a, he's a psychologist, he's a teacher, a writer, uh, not nearly as, as awesome as Randy, but he did a TED talk. And I, you know, so that's the reality of it. But he just wrote this and he, and he talks about in this TED talk, his own struggle with depression, how 20 years ago, he had like five loss events that just turned his world upside down. And he always thought of himself as this very strong person who could survive anything. And then he found himself clinically depressed, needing to make decisions about medication and things like that. And so at the end of this TED talk, which by the way, I would encourage everybody to watch if you want a primer to just get a glimpse and insight. It's very, very good. This is what he says. Now just listen to what he says and thinking about what we've heard from Paul. He says, shutting out the depression strengthens it. While you hide from it, it grows. And the people who do better are the ones who are able to tolerate the fact that they have this condition. Paul says, I have a thorn in my flesh. He says, those who can tolerate their depression are the ones who achieve resilience. The opposite of depression is not happiness, but vitality. And in these days, my life is vital, even on the days when I'm sad. He says, I felt that funeral in my brain. And he was referring to a poem that he quoted at the beginning of his TED talk by Emily Dickinson. He says, and I sat next to the Colossus at the edge of the world and I have discovered something inside of myself that I would have to call a soul that I had never formulated until that day 20 years ago when hell came to pay me a surprise visit. And I think that while I hated being depressed and would hate to be depressed again, listen to what he says. I have found a way to love my depression. I love it because it has forced me to find and cling to what? Joy. And the joy of the Lord will be your strength. I love it because each day I decide, sometimes gamely and sometimes against the moment's reason, to cleave to reasons for living. And that I think is a highly privileged rapture. Let me ask you this question. What is God inviting you into today? Band's gonna come, they're gonna lead us in a song. During this song, I wanna give you the opportunity to consider what God is doing in your heart. Perhaps God is inviting you to stop by the resource table today to look and to find some resources for you or for a friend or for a family member to ask a question. Perhaps you sense God inviting you to be that friend who says, it's okay if you're not okay. Maybe you're like me and you're this half full kind of person and you wanna be the cheerleader and you wanna tell everybody it's gonna be okay and you wanna take it on and we can get you out of this and you have to learn to just sit back and just share in the present suffering, to be present in the present suffering. Maybe that's what God's inviting you into today. And here's the big one. Here's the challenge to us today. Maybe God is inviting you to bring into the light that you're struggling with depression that it's a part of your story, that it will be a part of your story. And maybe it's a part of your story because you yourself have depression. Maybe it's a part of your story because you have a close friend, a spouse, a son or a daughter, a mom or a dad, but it's part of your story and you've kept it in the light because the church has failed to create a space to illuminate a path to peace for you. So here's what we're gonna do today. 
We're gonna sing this song. I'm gonna invite everybody to stand. Go ahead and stand on up. That's my nice way of saying get up. Here's the invitation. If this is you, if, intersection, if, if your life is an intersection of depression, I wanna challenge you to have the courage to step out of your row and come and join me right down here in the front during this song. And I'm gonna pray over you in the light. And that might be a really scary thing to do, but here's what I know in scripture, when people wanted an experience with Jesus, when they needed Jesus to intersect with their pain, their heartache, their, their rejection, there was always some step that they took to vocalize, to verbalize, to use their physical bodies to say, Jesus, I need help. And there was something about that it activated strength. It activated strength and it brought it into the light. There is nothing magical. We didn't spray any pixie dust right here. I promise there's nothing magical here. What is powerful though, is, the, is stepping out in the courage of Christ and owning who you are as a beautifully, wonderful, God-created person. And we, we, haven't, we haven't done a good job saying that because we've said, oh, you're beautifully and wonderful and awesome as long as you look like me and are heterosexual and have live in white middle-class suburb and don't struggle with depression and have kind of a good sense of humor. But that's not what this space is. That's not what this is. That's not what the kingdom is. And so I wanna invite you to come, but here's my rule. If you see somebody coming by themselves, you have to have the courage to walk. I don't care if you know him or not. If you know Jesus, you walk with him because nobody walks down a path of peace by themselves. And so I only know about seven of you. So if I see somebody walking down and there's nobody with them, like one of the seven that I know, it's like, Tara, let's go, come on, get out here. So don't make me do that to you. Just, if you see somebody standing by themselves, just come and just stand next to them. You don't, please don't give them a hug or anything like that. that like, I'm not, I, I get that. Like, if you know them, that's fine, different, whatever. Just, just be present. And if they wanna grab the rail, they'll grab the rail, it's okay. We're gonna see this song, I'm gonna pray over you. We're gonna receive the offering and get you out of here. But I just think it's important that we exercise our faith a little bit here today.